we did such a good job as a country for so long, and then along comes neoliberalism and the whole thing falls apart. We actually did have a minimum wage that kept pace with productivity growth from when it was created in 1937 until yeah. 1968, so three decades. The difference between 725 and 27 is just it's just mind-boggling. Well, it's almost $20. Tell a yeah. minimum wage worker you're going to get a $20 an hour raise and uh, see how their lives would change. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Nick, it was very exciting. I think we talked about this on a previous podcast that in President Biden's first State of the Union address, he called for a $15 minimum wage uh, in 2022. Uh, When did you first call for a $15 minimum wage? Fall of 2012. Okay, so almost a decade ago. (laughs) So a little bit of (laughs) <laughs> a little bit of ahead of your time. We do have a $15 minimum wage in a lot of places. Yeah, we do. In, and higher even yes. in Seattle. Do you, do you know um, what it is right now in Seattle? In in Seattle, it is now $17.27 an hour. And um, oh, my God. Yeah. We still have uh, restaurants in Seattle? We, we we do. And in fact, they're they're still having trouble hiring enough employees. Yeah. Ten years since you called for a $15 minimum wage. And of course, We've had inflation. The uh, economy has continued to grow. Yeah. Uh, productivity has continued to grow. The population has continued. Everything's grown. Except the minimum wage. Ex- yeah. Well, except the minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour. And also $15. It was really nice. Fight for 15 yeah. had that nice alliteration. Yeah. You wonder what it might be today? If it attracts productivity and inflation. Yeah. What, what yeah. might it be today? Well... Today, we get to find out because our friend Dean Baker, who's a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, is going to tell us with uh, updated analysis and uh, should be very interesting to learn about where we would be if we weren't governed by such idiots. Dean Baker, senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. My most recent book, which is now somewhat dated, is Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And I've been writing a lot on inflation, which people can find on our website. You've been a longtime fellow traveler on the minimum wage and have done a lot of great research on what it was and what it should be and so on and so forth. In January 2020, you reported that if the minimum wage had kept place with inflation and risen in step with productivity growth, it'd be $24. Well, lots lots has changed since then. So it seems like a great time for an update. So what would the minimum wage be today if it had kept pace with those those things? Well, I did look at that and it would be over 27 an hour today. Oh my God. <laughs> kind of incredible to think about, but we've had, uh, well, unfortunately, a fair bit of inflation. And then we actually have had, have had pretty good productivity growth the last two years, but less than 5% over that period. So we'd be over 27 an hour if you added in inflation and productivity growth. 
So the federal minimum wage today is in the range of one quarter of what it would be if those folks had effectively shared it fairly in GDP growth over the last, whatever it's been, 20 years or 30 years, 40 years. Well, this goes back, I mean, the the, the the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, just to remind everyone, my reason for getting on this, you know, why I thought to do this originally was we actually did have a minimum wage that kept pace with productivity growth from when it was created in 1937, the first federal minimum wage, I guess, 38, it took effect. Yeah. So 1968, so three decades. So, you know, we had a long period where we did do that. And of course, the economy did very well in that period, not saying right. that's the reason, but it obviously didn't keep the economy from performing very well. It is shocking that we did such a good job as a country for so long. And then along comes neoliberalism and the whole thing falls apart. It's just really amazing. But the, the difference between 725 and 27 is just it's just Not mind boggling. Well. well, it's almost twenty dollars. Yeah. <laughs> Tell a yeah. minimum wage worker you're going to get a twenty dollar an hour raise and uh, see how how their lives would change. Yeah. I mean, it's one of these things you think about, you know, I almost feel embarrassed to say it because I go, well, it sounds ridiculous, but it isn't ridiculous. You go, OK, so imagine you had a worker putting in 40 hours a week. 50 weeks a year, 27 bucks an hour, that worker is earning 54,000 a year. So yeah. imagine our lowest paid worker, the people cleaning the bathrooms, you know, the people bussing tables in restaurants, the lowest paid workers getting 54,000 a year or a couple, you know, two minimum wage workers, all, yeah. you know, just right at the bottom, 108,000 a year would be their family income. Yeah. And the country would be completely different. Our politics would be completely different budget deficits would not exist. I mean, it's just, it, it's such a, it, the counterfactual is so profoundly different. It just, it just boggles the mind. So, so Nick, uh, you started pushing for uh, a $15 minimum wage back in 2012. So a decade right. ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that people would respond to you and, and we still get it sometimes today. Oh, if $15 is good, why not 50? And, you know, they thought they'd have you there. And the answer then was, uh, well, 50 would probably be too high. But if $15 is okay, why not 27? It turns out there's no reason it, it couldn't be 27. Correct. I wouldn't go quite that far in the sense that we've changed the economy so that without other changes, I think there would be a problem if we, you know, if we were to say, you know, even over a five, six, seven year period, raise the minimum wage to 27, you know, or a little bit higher, adjusting for inflation and productivity growth over that period, there would be problems because we, we've restructured the economy to give so much money to people at the high end. And I'll just mention one example because it really grates on me. Um, everyone's heard of Moderna, of course, which developed the mRNA and one of the mRNA vaccines, which is great. I mean, that I got their, their vaccine. I'm very happy for that. Um, and, you know, obviously hundreds of millions of others did. But we had a small number of people get enormously rich from that. Uh, Fortune uh, had an article last summer that said we've created five Moderna billionaires. That was as of last summer. It might be more by now. Um, we didn't have to do that. We gave them a patent monopoly. If we just said, hey, we paid for we paid for a very large portion of the research, we could have said, okay, we're paying for the research. This is going to be in the public domain. This is going to be sold as a generic. So it would be sold for probably about a tenth the price that it was actually sold for. I realize the government picked up the tab, but whatever. 
the, it would be sold for about a tenth the price. You'd have the people who did the, the work on it, great work. They'd be well compensated. They wouldn't be billionaires. I'd like to step back a little bit and, and dive into uh, a couple technical issues here. Uh, Dean, you, you, that $27 figure that's based on if the minimum wage had tracked productivity growth over the past well, half century now, I guess. Um, why is productivity the metric and not inflation? Well, it's actually both. I mean, to be honest, I'm adding in inflation as well. So what, what's often been talked about in the debate, though, is simply getting back to the minimum wage that we had in 68 adjusted for inflation. And what that means, let's say we did that, let's say, and I'd have to double check what that is today. It's probably about 11 or 12 an hour, but I don't know that off the top of my head. But anyhow, if we had done that, the implication is that as the economy gets richer, workers at the bottom aren't sharing in that. They're just getting, they're just able to, to, to basically run in place. So over the last, uh, you know, at this point, 68, 54 years, uh, productivity has probably gone up close to 200%. In other words, close to triple what it was back in 68. So we might say that uh, the average worker could, in principle, have three times the wage, but the minimum wage worker is still just where they were in 1968. So the idea of saying minimum wage should rise in step with inflation and productivity, which had done for three decades from 38 to 68, is that those at the bottom share in the benefits of economic growth. So that's the logic of tying it to productivity. And again, that, that's what we did do for three decades. And that, and that was a period in which uh, the benefits of economic growth were pretty equally shared across income groups. Yeah. So if you look at in analyses, a number of people have done these, you know, trying to break it down, what people do at the 50th percentile, the 25th percentile. Most of the evidence suggests that they shared roughly equally. You know, again, our data is not that good to be able to say exactly, but it's pretty close so that no one could get too upset if you say, yeah, it was pretty evenly shared for those three decades. And just to be clear, we had very good growth during that period. So it wasn't that, you know, we all shared poverty. We're seeing very rapid growth for those three decades. So uh, we both had very good growth, in fact, much better growth than we've had in the subsequent half century. Um, so we had very good growth and it was evenly shared. Yeah. Well, and those two things, just to be clear, those two things seem to be inextricably intertwined. Evenly sharing the growth appears to create more growth. I think there's a very good argument for that for two <laughs> yeah. reasons. One is we know that when you have people that you know, are in poverty or relative poverty, um, they're not productive. Their kids tend not to be productive. They have a difficult time caring for their kids. I mean, that's not a secret. You know, it's not saying bad things about them. But if you're at a minimum wage job, you're struggling to pay the rent, you end up being evicted, you end up being homeless, not good for your kid. I mean, that's hardly a secret, hardly really a controversial claim. Yeah. So it's true in that sense. The other sense is just the standpoint of incentives from the stamp uh, of companies. If you can get a worker for seven twenty-five an hour, okay, you're not going to have a lot of incentive to invest in in equipment for them or in their own training. What, what, what do you care? You're just going to go out and get another worker for seven twenty-five an hour. Do, do, do you think our our low minimum wage uh, actually uh, impedes productivity growth because there's no need to make those investments in increasing productivity? I think there's certainly a very good case for that. You know, it's one of these things I'm a little reluctant to say because I, I don't think I can nail that down, you know, and say, oh, well, if we had more rapid productivity and more higher wage growth or, you know, higher minimum wage, we'd have more productivity. I mean, I think there is some evidence to support that. I'm just saying I don't feel like I 
you know, we have that totally nailed down. So I could say, oh, yeah, if we had had a much higher minimum wage, we'd have much higher productivity. But I'm inclined to believe that. I mean, I think there's good arguments, whether or not good arguments for a higher minimum wage, whether or not that's true. I mean, we want people to have a decent standard of living. We want their kids to have a decent uh, uh, upbringing. And, and that means that those at the bottom have to have higher wages. So I think that's a good argument, whether or not it means higher productivity. But I am inclined. I mean, you know, if I had to put put a bet on it one way or the other, higher productivity or not, I'd say, yeah, probably will lead to higher productivity. Yeah, it's funny because, again, you know, one of the arguments against raising the minimum wage is that, oh, if you raise the minimum wage, then companies will just uh, invest in labor-saving technology. But that is pretty much the definition of investing in raising productivity. Yes, exactly. exactly. In the absence of that, we have no productivity increases. <laughs> it's just like, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. it's... And productivity is our friend. Arguments. Yeah. Like we're supposed right. to be fearful that we'll have more productivity growth. And isn't that what we want? Yeah, you would think so. So you, you mentioned you were paying a lot of attention to inflation. And obviously, inflation has been high for the past year. Uh, what's happening? Is it supply? Is it demand? Is it combination of the two? It's definitely a combination of the two. So there's a school of thought, Larry Summers, the uh, you know, former Clinton and Obama advisor, for that matter, has been the most pr prominent proponent of it, that the big problem was we overstimulated the economy with uh, President Biden's Recovery Act that was passed just about a year ago today, a little more, and that it's a demand side story. I hold that he's not totally wrong. I mean, I think there's clearly an element of demand here, but I think that most of the story is the supply chain supply side story that we've ended up with because of the pandemic or the reopening from the pandemic actually and because of the pandemic because i mean we're not even not fully over today but we, omicron's just been faded in the last month or so um that we've seen serious impediments to supply that wouldn't otherwise be there so again i've had arguments with people what are you saying if we can't supply enough isn't that too much demand well the point is that Ordinarily, we would be able to supply this much, but because right. we had this reopening worldwide, we're not able to meet meet that demand, which we otherwise would have been able to meet. And the strongest piece of evidence for this is that other countries that didn't have big stimulus, if we look at UK, look at Spain, look at Germany, they all saw big leaps in their inflation rate. It's over five. I think Spain's over 6%. We're, we're somewhat higher, no doubt about it, but they've all seen big leaps in their inflation rate, even though they didn't have any big stimulus. So that strongly pushes me towards saying it's a supply chain problem. And for that reason, I don't want to get caught up temporary transitory. We will overcome this because the supply chain problem is not going to be permanent. Yeah. I mean, speaking as a business person with a lot of connection to what's happening globally, I mean, I spent the whole fall in Europe last year, like every country in the world is experiencing the same supply constraints, <laughs> right? Like yeah, yeah. they can't find truck drivers in Sweden either. It's just ludicrous to believe that the biggest problem here is that we help families out a little bit through the pandemic. I mean, Larry Summers, of course, has his head up his ass as he always does with respect to virtually everything. Larry Summers is my true South. If Larry hates it, I, I know I, I know I must be on the right track. Um, ninety percent of the inflation going on right now is supply chain disruption created by the pandemic. All of it will work itself out over the next year. 
and prices will stabilize or begin to decline again as commodity producers and manufacturers and good producers of all kinds normalize their ability to meet demand. But it's just, you know, demand didn't increase in the United States as a consequence of the stimulus. Well, we did get a jump in demand if you look to the months that they're paying out the checks. So if you look to, to March and April, there were okay, big but GDP, GDP didn't increase. No, and, and, and the story there, of course, was that there was a shift in demand. So that right. money that people ordinarily spent going to restaurants or taking vacations. Yeah, I went somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Right. But again, we're getting over that. And, and there's yeah. already evidence for that. So one of the really big factors in the jump in prices has been cars, both new and used. And if, right. if you look at the January data, new car prices were, were stable. They didn't rise at all. Um, used car prices still went up. But we have data from a private source. There's, um, I'm forgetting the name now, but there's a private company that tracks used car prices. They showed them falling over 2% in a single month in February. Uh, we'll see what the consumer price index shows later this week. But the point is, we, we seem to be turning around there. There's other items, television prices, which jumped almost 10% between March and August of last year. They've since fallen back about 8%. So there's there's examples here that, to my view, indicate what we should expect to see in a lot of other items that jumped in price in, in 2021, um, that they're not only going to stabilize, but they're likely actually going to come down. So that's why I'm much less worried about this than Larry Summers. Let's move on. We don't mean to put you on the spot here, but the labor standard beyond the minimum wage that is nearest and dearest to our hearts is the overtime threshold, which is inextricably intertwined with the minimum wage because it's the thing that governs maximum hours, Yeah. right? Yeah. So it does no good to have a minimum wage if somebody can make you work 100 hours a week. That, that right. you know, And you know, we have been in a war with various administrations uh, over restoring the overtime threshold to its previous high watermark, which would be in the range of $90,000 a year today, I suspect. Um, what's your view on that? Yeah, I think we very much have to raise it. I, I haven't looked at the exact number where we'd be, but the basic story is, you know, I'm sure you know, we had set the threshold, I think it hit its peak in the late 70s, and it hasn't risen in step with wages and productivity as you know, again, just as with the minimum wage, we would have expected the threshold. So employers have the option, I shouldn't say they have the option, they could say workers are exempt from being eligible for overtime if they're in a managerial capacity. How do you define a managerial capacity? Okay, your CEO is clearly a manager, but they invariably play games. So you have the night manager at a McDonald's that might not be paid all that much more than minimum wage. And they say, oh, they're managerial in a managerial capacity. So the threshold is to get around that trick. It just says, okay, if you're paid below this amount, we don't care what you call the person. Yeah. You're not in a managerial position. So again, I, I haven't looked to whether 90,000 is the right number. I mean, if you've done the arithmetic on it, I certainly trust you. But it, it has not kept pace with wages and productivity growth, and that's allowed employers to, to gain this. And it's yeah. it, just to be clear, it's not just that you're not getting paid your overtime. You might not even be getting paid your normal wage because the whole point is they're saying, oh, you're a salaried worker. We could have you work 55, 60 hours a week. You're a salaried worker. You're not the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, the 40-hour work week. That doesn't apply to you. So in yeah. effect, you're putting in those extra hours for free. Yeah, hundred percent. So, so I just did some math for you, Dean. I, initially, when minimum wage and overtime threshold came out, and for decades to following, minimum wage was about half the median, and the overtime threshold was three times the uh, minimum wage. 
So uh, if you say the minimum wage should be $27 an hour, okay. that would bring the overtime threshold to about $168,000. Yeah, yeah. $168,000 a year. Our previous math would be like to cover the same percentage of the population that was covered in the 1970s. It'd be around 100,000. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Our, our Obviously, there are a ton of ways to look at this particular threshold and standard, but the common sense way we want to look at it is that, you know, if you earn more than two thirds of your fellow citizens, you're probably fine and on your own. Uh, but if you earn less than two thirds of your fellow citizens, one th the top one third, then, then almost certainly someone is telling you what to do and they should pay you overtime if they want you to work more than 40 hours a week. Yeah. And this is just kind of common sense in that, you know, if you, you know, we know this at this point that if you give employers an option to play games, obviously not every employer, but many will. No. So if they could save money by saying, oh, you're, you're, you're a manager, then if that gets them out of paying overtime, they're going to do that. So what else should we what else should we be thinking about or working on, Dean? Well, since you're talking about overtime, I mean, one of the things that I, I would love to see is a reduction in what is the standard work week, because there's nothing about 40 hours that was magic. Um, right. That was it had been 48 hours um, prior to that. I mean, 12 hour a day used to be a demand for unions back in the 19th century. So shortening the work week uh, it could take different forms of course that could mean more uh, more vacation time which yeah. again is a great thing but the point is that workers should should be able to enjoy more time off to do whatever right. they want and it's it's unfortunate that we've pretty much frozen the 40-hour work week that's not true elsewhere france 35 right. hours is the norm you know yeah. so so that i think is a great thing to try and you know get people more leisure time. And again, it could be both a shorter work week and vacations because in France, they have mandatory vacations. Everyone has to get, I forget whether it's four or five weeks a year. Yeah. Um, you know, people need more leisure time. So, so these are really big deals. Um, you know, I, I was mentioning drug patents. I mean, uh, that might be a sidebar here, but I mean, there really is a huge amount of money there. We spend about 500 billion a year, more than that, in fact, on prescription drugs. If we snapped our fingers and there were no drug patents or other protections would be less than a hundred billion. So that yeah. difference, 400 billion comes to about $3,000 for every family in the country. And right. I understand we have to pay for the research. I, you know, I realize that, but I think that the, the patent monopoly system is just a horrible, horrible way to do that. Um, so that's something that, you know, I've been kind of a spare time project for me in, in many years, a little less than spare time in the last year and a half with the vaccines where I think, I mean, again, great. We have the vaccines. Horrible that they weren't widely spread throughout the world as quickly as possible. But anyhow, those are some items. Yeah. So uh, we always ask uh, the benevolent dictator question. So if you were in charge and politics was not at play, what would you do about the minimum wage? Like if you could, if you were in charge, what would you do? Well, I would certainly look to up it and, you know, set a schedule again. I, I don't, we can't get to 27 hour, you know, this year, next year, and probably not even 10 years. But I think setting a target where we would say in some reasonably not too distant future, we're going to get the minimum wage back in line with productivity, productivity growth and inflation. And then, you know, I, I'd give the other things that we'd have to change to make that possible. The other things that, you know, the drug patents being one, downsize our financial sector, uh, fix corporate governance, CEOs shouldn't be getting 30 million a year, particularly the incompetent ones. Um, so, so I have a whole agenda I could push through there, but I think, you know, setting the minimum wage 
back to where it would be if we had kept it in line with productivity growth and inflation is you know sort of a really great target and then say let's make the other changes that will allow that to be possible yeah that's great one final question why do you do this work you know i think the reason we all do you want to make the world a better place i mean you know you decide what's important to you and i mean that might sound hokey but i you know that's that's the reality i wanted to do something that i hope would have an impact sometimes you do most of the time you don't or you don't know if you did you know yeah i want to try and make the world a better place i don't think that sounds hokey i think yeah especially nowadays and there seems to be so many people out there who are intent on making it a worse place <laughs> yes unfortunately <laughs> yeah well dean thank you again for uh your work and thank you for joining us on the podcast super well, interesting. thanks a lot for having me on I enjoyed it So Goldie, 27 bucks an hour. Wow. It's shocking and depressing how badly the federal government has failed working people. And if, if by the way, if you are a median worker listening to this podcast, there is nothing I want to underscore more than that your wages are inextricably tied to the, to the right. minimum wage too. Because when the minimum wage rises, that compresses the median wage upward. One of the stupidest arguments neoclassical economists make is that there has to be this magical relationship between the minimum and the median, and that if we push the minimum up too far towards the existing median, that something bad will happen. This is just this is just arithmetic nonsense. The median wage is inextricably intertwined with the minimum wage. And if we raise the minimum wage to $25 an hour, then the median wage, instead of being approximately $25 an hour, would be $40 or $50 an hour. Right. This is what people have to imagine. If, if you can't empathize for minimum wage workers, if you still think that these are you know, unskilled, lazy people who don't yeah. deserve anything better than 725 working at a McDonald's or something. Okay. And you are a median wage worker. Guess what? You're earning minimum wage. <laughs> right. You are earning. Th think about it this way. You are earning right now as a median worker, you're working, right. making 50 some thousand dollars a year. That is the median wage. That is what a minimum wage worker would have been work making today had the minimum wage tracked productivity inflation exactly as it had for the previous 30 years. Right. So from the time the minimum wage was created until, you know, sometime in the 1970s, it tracked inflation and productivity. And then it separated. Something similar happened to median wages. Not quite as bad as happened to uh, the folks at the bottom of the pay scale, but you're making half what you would have been making had the median wage continued to track productivity and, and right. inflation. Which, which, by the way, aligns almost perfectly with the RAND, uh, right. the RAND Corporation study on inequality, which basically shows that a, the median full-time worker in America who earns about 50 grand a year would earn almost a hundred grand a year right. if they had kept their same share of GDP. And, and here's the thing, let's say you're making, yeah. 
let's say you're making eighty thousand dollars a year. You think you think you're doing pretty well right now. You're doing way above median. You'd be earning like one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year. Even people in the top ten percent, that in the ninetieth percentile, I believe, earn about one hundred and twenty-five or one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year. But if they had been held harmless by the last forty-five years of neoliberal economic policies, if their share of income had kept up with GDP growth, they'd earn like one hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year. So basically, the only people in the economy that either fairly shared or disproportionately shared are people in the top one or two percent. So it's just, it is shocking, shocking how fucked up this is. And if there was ever an indictment of the failure of the federal government and Congress to do what's right for American families, this is it. It just boggles the mind. So, so again, getting back to that State of the Union uh, address, Biden very clearly called for a $15 minimum wage. Uh, does that give you hope, Nick? You know, like a little bit. Look, there is forward progress in the sense that at least the Democratic administration and the majority of Democratic members in Congress are on the right side of this issue. It's, it's a small thing, but at least they're, they're also not the enemy here, which right. they were previously. they used to be. They right, used to they be. Thought, like, oh, no, yeah, $10. Yeah, that might yeah, be too much. Yeah, right. I mean, it, 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 you know, uh, listeners need to recognize that the people who should have been on the right side of this issue for the last 20 years haven't been until very recently. So we are making some political progress, but obviously the proof is in the pudding. Right. Change the goddamn law, you clowns. Right. Well, I, I think part of the problem is, you know, hate to blame Democrats. If they had functional control of the Senate, a lot of the thing that Biden advocates yeah. for a lot of those programs would be passed. Yeah. yeah. But they don't have functional control of the Senate. They have 50 and then you have to subtract Mansion and Cinema and most of this stuff. So that's not real control. Again, I just want to end on the fact how how much things have moved over the past 10 years. 10 yeah. years ago when you said uh, $15, people laughed at you. They thought Correct. you were crazy. Yeah. That was not just bad economics, it was bad politics. Yeah. And now, let's be clear, the majority of economists uh, have come around to the fact that uh, the, the minimum wage is not a job killer. There's no evidence that it slows the economy, slows productivity, kills job growth, et cetera. And the overwhelming majority of one political party has come around to the fact yeah. that it's not bad politics either. Yeah. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.